Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us here today in a very quiet Westminster as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I'm Scott Challoner and today I'm joined by Paola Diana. Paola is an entrepreneur, author and women's rights expert, as well as being the founder and CEO of the Diana Group. Uh, Paola, welcome. Great to have you with us on the uh, programme today. Hi, Scott. Thank you for having me. I'm really pleased to talk to you today. Uh, my pleasure having you um, as well, Paola. So um, this podcast, first and foremost, is all about uh, leadership, good leadership at that. And it's really coming under the test at the moment with, of course, the um, disruption and fallout of the COVID-19 outbreak. Um, tell me, um, in your line of work, managing a business, how has it been for you over the last few weeks? It's really challenging. This COVID-19 crisis uh, is, uh, is something that we couldn't even expect so we weren't really ready for this in terms of uh, having a plan already put in place. So definitely we are uh, improvising as, uh, as much as we can. And I'm talking about other entrepreneurs like me. And here, I think, is the time when you can really see uh, the leadership of uh, you know someone. So first thing, uh, in my opinion is uh, the capacity of uh, staying positive despite everything's going on uh, and being positive and show this positivity to your staff, to your employees. This is fundamental in my opinion because uh, many people, uh, they started panicking uh, even before than two weeks ago, actually. Also, I, have, I run businesses uh, in multiple countries Mm-hmm. Not only in the UK, uh, but in Italy as well. And we have clients all over the world. So we are monitoring the situation all over the world. And it's becoming really alarming in many, many uh, parts of the world. So I have to keep my staff positive and grounded. Very important. And then I have to let them focus in the results in the long term. Because unfortunately, the short term results will be very poor. Uh, maybe, you know, nothing because uh, uh, of the COVID-19 crisis. It doesn't depend on us. It depends on uh, the lockdown. But we have to focus on the long term. So we have now to do uh, things that might be beneficial for our business in the future. And again, as a leader, uh, I feel that my uh, duty is to lead by example. That's very important. So I have to show them that I'm calm, that I keep working, that I'm focused. And of course, I feel on my shoulder the responsibility of this difficult time. Uh, First of all, the cash flow uh, responsibility, because as we all know, if a company doesn't earn money, you know, in one, two or three months, uh, that's nothing to do. Uh, That company can't survive. So we have to find ways in order to uh, keep uh, some cash flow, reducing the cost, stopping the payment of loans and uh, uh, renegotiating with banks, renegotiating with the creditors, all this stuff that is uh, quite bad because uh, every time you're you're doing this. You talk with other, you know, uh, realities, uh, uh, and eventually also other private companies that are facing the same problem. So we are really all together in this, and uh, we have to be understanding of each other. And uh, an- another really difficult uh, situation that I face now every day um, is the situation with clients. 
because many clients are now refusing to pay what they have to pay because of the crisis, because of the COVID. Some of them, they're genuine. Others, unfortunately, are taking this as an excuse because, I mean, there is also this kind of people around us, unfortunately. They're not all angels. So we have to find a way and find compromises in order to get paid, if not 100%, at least 50%. So, yeah, uh, this is a very, very challenging moment. But I... I'm sure we can get through this. Certainly. And um, you talk about there the importance of maintaining positivity. And uh, I think for a business leader, I mean, it comes down to the culture that they instill um, on their business, doesn't it? Um, A culture of positivity, which is going to make people look at the positives, be self-motivated and just keep working, especially in cohesion with each other. It's so important, especially at times like this, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. It's very important. And also, I always focus on the positive sides of our business. And I think each business has its own positive side. So as an example, we uh, were blessed to have very um, high net worth uh, individuals and families and companies and uh, the company as clients. And so I, I hope and I think that in the future, these uh, clients won't be hit too much by the crisis so they will keep running you know the businesses and needing our services as usual so i'm stressing this point all the time when i talk with my uh employees because i have to give them some you know positive notes something real to get attached to because uh, everything now seems to uh, crash down and of course employees are very scared for the future. They're scared to lose the job because around us, many companies already started firing people. It's a very dramatic moment for many, many companies. And I, I'm pleased that the government in the UK made this plan to help uh, uh, the market and the companies especially and also self-employed people because it's very important that we are supported in the next uh, three months, I would say. Absolutely right. And uh, you uh, did mention there um, so about some of um, the steps that you've taken, of course, to protect um, your own business. Um, did you always imagine early in your career that you'd end up in a position of uh, leadership uh, power? That's what I'm interested to know. I mean, even though you didn't sort of see this sort of challenge coming, did you imagine that you would be in a leadership position? It's an interesting question. Uh, as I'm a positive person by nature, um, I wasn't really imagining anything like this. But I, I went through a lot during my life, uh, not only when I was an entrepreneur, but starting with my early age, and then when I was in politics before becoming an entrepreneur. And I, I faced a lot of uh, difficult moments, and I always maintain my uh, steadiness. I am very silent, so I, I know that I have to be strong and keep running and keep dreaming, keep thinking about the future, keep uh, making plans and looking forward instead of looking backwards. So mm-hmm. I think I was trained for this crisis. Uh, yeah, I, I think life already trained me. So that's why I'm not really uh, feeling that this is something difficult for me to react in this way. Mm. But I can see other people around me, they're not reacting well. Unfortunately, many people, they're panicking. Absolutely. So for those that maybe are panicking in the heat of the moment, what sort of advice would you give to those individuals? 
I would give them the advice to focus on the small things. Don't start thinking about the uncertainty of the future and don't start trying to control something that you can't control. Focus on the small things. Focus on the positive things that you have in your personal life, in your business life, and start from there, one step at a time, one step after the other. And don't stop. You know, life is like a, a bicycle ride. You don't have to stop. You have to keep going, keep going, keep cycling and moving forward. That's the only thing to do. And also, I, I always give this advice to everyone. You can use the free time that you have now, if you have, uh, to learn something new, to improve your skills. Mm. Uh, so ne- never abandon, you know, hope and uh, the inspiration, the motivation to become a better human being because uh, you, you just need time. Time is actually the most precious thing we have, if you think about. Before um, I was, before the COVID-19, I'm saying, I, I used to hear a lot of people complaining, oh, I don't have time. I can't do this. I have no time. Mm. And now suddenly they all have time. So this is a positive note. You know, this is something... Mm-hmm. precious we now have more time so we should use this uh, in a better way absolutely and um, we've spoken about um, your leadership qualities and the way that you go about uh, doing things um, yourself um what are some of the influences behind your own leadership style would you say paula during my lifetime i i, I was influenced a lot by leaders of the past because i i love history personally so I, I love to read autobiographies of great leaders of the past. Uh, and they could be politicians or they could be, you know, successful people in every type of industry. I personally love the uh, biographies of uh, people who made it coming from nothing, mm. who really created themselves despite all the odds. Um, and, and this is the type of person that I, I became. I made myself and I, I'm inspired by self-made people, people who are strong and don't give up. And as I said before, you know, I, I fail. Fail is, is actually a word that I don't like. I, I actually learned. <laughs> That's the thing that is more important, you know, to learn when things mm. go wrong. I learned many times and uh, I fell down, but I had to, to, to stand up again. And, and walk again and run again. And that's the most important thing. So all these people, famous or not, that I hear the stories of, they inspire me every day because they're all worth of my attention and uh, I, I admire them. I think uh, all of us in our, you know, little uh, or big circle, whatever it is, we can inspire other people, showing them our our silence, that we, we don't expect to fall down and we just want to stand up again and we do that absolutely and all of the great leaders they do have that moment where they do fall somewhere in their life but it's not about necessarily the fall for those individuals it's how they get back up again and just continue isn't it exactly and also how they can inspire and motivate people around them uh, if I think about a leader in the UK of course I am highly inspired by Winston Churchill because uh, he didn't only save uh, the United Kingdom, he saved uh, Europe. He saved uh, the World War during the Second World War. So he's a great leader, you know, who could inspire us during difficult times. Because uh, if we think about, you know, a war, 
that was uh, much worse than this COVID-19 you know, mm. situation. And uh, he never lost his mind uh, and he could inspire millions and billions of people to do what they had to do, to suffer and keep fighting, keep fighting. That's the only thing to do. So um, that, that, that's what, yeah, I, I think makes a great leader, the capacity of uh, inspire other people exactly. and leading by example again. So that's the most important thing. And, uh, you know, I, I hope I, I'm doing the same, not only with my uh, employees, of course, and clients, uh, but also with uh, all the women and girls that I try to help every day with my work as uh, you know, an advocate for women's rights. Uh, I never stop advocating for them. And uh, right now I'm doing a lot in order to uh, awaken people uh, about the perils of uh, domestic violence, especially during the lockdown. So I am trying my best uh, to, to talk about this and to share my experience in order to help other girls and other women to fight back and to lean in and to speak up about their stories and try to change their lives. And again, don't accept uh, violence. Refuse uh, the fact that violence is normal and, and try to find uh, and create a better society for them and for everyone. It's an incredible message. Um, before we do um, go about wrapping things up, um, Paola, um, if we look to the future now, do you give me an idea of what you imagine the next 12 months are going to hold for yourself, for the group and your businesses and what you really hope to achieve in that time, especially beyond the COVID-19 outbreak? Yeah, I think the first, uh, the next three months would be challenging. But after that, uh, I'm positive that we will grow. As usual, I really want to grow and respect the business plan for 2020 that we had. So I want to hire more people. And I'm actually seeing the positive side that uh, I'm sure I will find in the market the talented people that eventually will be fired uh, by other companies. So there will be, you know, um, a greater pull for me to, to choose. And, and then we will push the marketing as much as we can, PR and everything in order to uh, gain more clients and offer our services in the best possible way. So I, I again, I don't accept uh, that we will uh, not reach our goals for 2020 because of COVID-19. I don't accept that. I have to think and believe and I strongly do that, that we can uh, do much better after the pause. So that's why we are preparing ourselves in order to smash it at the end of this crisis, because this will end. We can't stay locked in forever. We will fight the virus. Absolutely. And let's hope that, of course, once um, it does um, um, end and we come out of the other side, that you do, of course, smash it over the next year and we do start seeing some real progress and that upward trajectory sooner rather than later. Yeah. Um, I have to say, Paola, it's been um, really insightful and also an absolute pleasure having you on the uh, the programme today. And Thank you. Um, I would also love to perhaps even have you back on in a few months' time just to look at this retrospectively and see how those hopes have been played out. So thanks again so much yeah. for your time. It would be my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me today. Absolute pleasure. Uh, pleasure's all mine, Paola. Um, I've really, really enjoyed it. Um, we now hand over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with England cricket legend Sir Andrew Strauss. And I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan enjoyed speaking to Sir Andrew. 
Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White, and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, Andrew, you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dresscothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dresscothic who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mm. mo at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly <laughs> stick, other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station, because of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you really got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international cricket or sporting career full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then you know, I got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was mm. captain of Middlesex, all my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later... I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out, you know, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test match. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, I'm, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So, it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. And this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business. Um to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive mm. um, source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsex a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day -day basis... My wife, Ruth, played a, a huge mm. role, you know, just in terms of because I, I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it. And you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you, you were previously or that that whole world is 
the real world and uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you and you need that grounding and again that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life i think so yeah i, I mean very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things being with different people sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international yes. cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that, but... I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, th- the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f- I think it was in the final day of the series and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible, <laughs> like just white of a sheet, grey. He looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Charlie, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. You know, and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it, it's just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we, we, we won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point now because there's there's so there were so many people back in two thousand five that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation, especially of children and school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly it was the one and only time in my life that i got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating you know i felt like i'd really arrived as well a done. celebrity yes. <laughs> only happened for that one night unfortunately but I, I did ask for a highlight and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored 100 in that fifth test yes. match under real pressure. And that, that was one that, you know, that, that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough, privilege I'm sure no doubt to serve as captain and whether you like it or not you become the focal point of criticism uh, you looked on up to and relied upon to be strong especially when the going gets tough you become a leader in many senses of the word uh, during your T20 
time as captain, Andrew, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um, well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. Mm-hmm. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th- there was that sort of realization: this is going to be a tough thing to do, um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually. The most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that that was a big part of it for me. Um, You know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership – I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. It's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be players when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment. And uh, the job of the leadership or the management is to to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, p- perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th- th- yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda. And, you know, if and when that happens, that that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your job. Absolutely. Um, And with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a wing question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them? And that you couldn't really do without it. Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so. Yes. Okay. Uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many, um, because. They'll know your heart's in the right place and they, uh, they'll they feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some, or whatever it might you might term to, to make sure that the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, it um, doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and, and how... Um, 
impressive you might be as a person, they will be wary of you mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of cricket at the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was, or was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain, that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hoyam Sol in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. It's quite a radical shift from what we, 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 what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. Yeah. And the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players' focus and interest. Yes. Um, and we had to move... With, in fact, we didn't have to move at so times. We need to get ahead of the time. <laughs> so, you know, we had to completely shift out both our philosophy, but also the way we played in order to do that. Um, and I was very lucky uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through. Um, and the second part of your question around what had the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to into what you want to happen and then do it themselves mm. and often you know in different time zones in different parts of the world so that was that was a very new experience for me well i think the strategy paid off and uh, i don't know about you but when watching that world cup final again as so many people did in this country it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, especially school kids who again might not have given cricket a second look who have now become Avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt no. how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life, and for it to be... The World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were Googling there and then what exactly the rules became. Because I yeah, well, so <laughs> was, was I, yeah. actually. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, now, Andrew, in your, in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, Andrew, to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. 
Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. And so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully, we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know this experience we'd all been through. And so after she died in December uh, 2018... Uh, I came back and launched the foundation with two focuses. Number one, to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer. These mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers. Um, five to 7,000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women, young women that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so, numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top 10 cancers... It's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare. It's probably a misnomer. But it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis, to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death even though we're all going to experience it in one shape way shape or form and um you know we i think as a society we need to be better than that we, we've come a long way in so many different areas and especially around mental health and we can do better about death there's no doubt about it well i think it's the, it, the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken um uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the uh, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams, so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again, so that was an incredible day for us it, last year. You could, you, whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary! I think it was the fifteenth of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day, and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway, yes. and then f for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth Day and to see the the wave of support you know it's probably it was just i myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that 
in a good way. You know, felt so much uh, love and support there. And then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised. And um, we want to take it up a gear this year and and make it more of a community thing, not just the the day at Lords. Um, I even saw some of the stuffiest members of the MCC Andrew wearing re- uh, wearing red. So what w- what an extraordinary yeah, thing! Yeah, well, a lot um, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> anyway, no, I think. But um, <laughs> no, it, absolutely, you know, they they were right behind us, and um, you know, we we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, because I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. Andrew, I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown... Um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience mm-hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the bra- blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get g- more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re- reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world we just can't rely on that money coming in Mm. to fund the game so we need to find another way of doing that um i just think it's going to be an incredible success i'm so excited about it i know there are people that are worried about it but in two or three years time um you know we're going to have our own uh short form tournament that will rival the big bash and we'll be moving towards the ipl and those are those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As a as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to. I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I, I, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's got to be the Lords one, right? That sh- sh- of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.